It's my very great pleasure to introduce Michael. Um, I'll first give you a little bit of uh, background to him so that you know exactly who you're meeting. Michael is an award-winning author, activist, and journalist. His international best-selling books about the way we live today, including The Omnivore's Dilemma, In Defense of Food and Cooked, combine meticulous reporting with anthropology, philosophy, culture, health, and natural history, something of a polymath. Time magazine has named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. But we're here tonight to discuss his latest best-selling and conversation-starting book, How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. I think that probably just about covers it. The book takes us on a mind-altering adventure, delving into states of consciousness, looking at the latest brain science, visiting the thriving underground community of psychedelic therapists, and uncovering a new field of scientific research. Right now, a shift in the public discussion around psychedelics and their positive therapeutic effects is taking place across the US and the UK, and this book has been hugely influential in that. We are starting to see psychedelic research becoming mainstream and having an impact on fields such as science and psychiatry, mental health, neuroscience, and social science. So it's great to have Michael with us all the way from California tonight. And the book, his book will be on sale at the end from Newham Bookshop. And Michael, I'm sure, will sign a copy for you. Uh, the format will be, we'll have about 50 minutes uh, discussion with myself and Michael, and he might even do a reading of uh, one particular passage, and then open the floor to your questions, so you'll be free to ask him anything I've missed. So please give a warm welcome to Michael. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. Not at all. Not at all. I just thought we'd start with a bit of fun, really, um, and a bit of audience participation. Uh. Uh, right. <laughs> Hands up, everyone who has taken psychedelics. No, ask, tell, them, <laughs> tell them to close their eyes first. Okay, close your eyes. Hands up, everyone who's taken psychedelics. Uh. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I think that was a resounding majority. That was a resounding majority. It's a home team audience. <laughs> and hands up all those who would do so again. Wow. I see you've kept your hand down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we I'm, might I'm come a, to that. I'm a little constrained at the moment. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So no, I, I actually haven't had any experiences since uh, since I published the book. The reason being, um, they're illegal. I don't know if you've heard, but um, uh, and I just was so open about it, and uh, I, I'm very concerned for the guides that I worked with, uh, the underground guides. That that uh, if anyone has decided to 
any aggressive prosecutor has decided to go after one of them, they, they might try to follow me to them. And uh, so I've... I've, uh, I've so you're worried about I've being a stooge, basically. Yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> want to put them in any jeopardy. That's a big concern of mine. So I look forward to the time when I can again. <laughs> when you're going to go incognito. Um, but look, let's, uh, the, the book is called The New Science. Um, but I think we should probably start by talking about what exactly the old science was. Would you like, kind of like to talk about it both yeah. in terms of, sort of ancient history yeah. and in terms of, you know, the 20th century? Yeah. So, like a lot of people, I think, I assume that psychedelics were a product of the 60s. And that word psychedelic has such an aroma of the 60s. But in fact, it's a 50s word. It was coined in uh, 1956 or 57. Uh, by an English psychiatrist working in, in uh, Canada named Humphrey Osmond. And um, there was, before the 60s, uh, a, a very uh, fertile period of research from the invention or the, the creation of LSD in the, in the 40s to uh, basically the backlash against psychedelics that the 60s catalyzed. Um, but even before that, before I talk about that, it turns out, I didn't realize, there is a deep history of psychedelics. Going back, uh, we don't know how far. Um, there is uh, evidence, uh, actually some of it just uncovered last week, for the use of, uh, of ayahuasca in uh, Bolivia a thousand years ago, at least a thousand years ago. A, a kit of tools and, and pouches was found, and they did uh, analysis on the residues and they found uh, the plants that are used to make ayahuasca, which curiously were not native to Bolivia. Uh, so that suggested there was a trade in psychedelics well before that. Um, there is evidence of, uh, uh, the, I mean, when the conquistadors came to Mexico, they found people using psilocybin. There were mushroom cults that the Spanish actually crushed, uh, but that, that work continued underground. Uh, and there's evidence that the Greeks used a psychedelic in the, um, the Eleusian Mysteries, uh, which is very mysterious still. And uh, this was an annual rite uh, in honor of Demeter, where um, an enormous percentage, I mean a very large percentage of uh, Greek people and most Greek elites uh, partook a, of a ceremony that involved the consumption of something called the Kikion, which was a potion that's never been identified um, and that gave them visions, allowed them to visit their ancestors, travel to the underworld, uh, and, and basically experience a beyond. And, and there are reports on what people saw, Plato wrote about it, and others have, um, but we don't know what they took, although there's a book coming out next year, actually, that um, purports to uh, have found, uh, with the help of some uh, archaeologists, uh, residues at the bottom of these cups that it had ergot in it, which ergot is the fungus from which LSD was derived. Uh, and that's been a theory that's been around. There hasn't been any physical evidence. So ancient use in, in the old world, ancient use in the new world, and um, uh, usually in religious ob observation uh, as a sacrament or healing or divination. So these substances have been around for a very long time. Many cultures have made use of them. There are also uh, psycho, uh, psychedelic snuffs and other things that you find in South America, more in the New World than the Old World. But Amanita muscaria mushrooms were used in, uh, by shamans in Siberia uh, as a psychedelic. And uh, so, yeah, there's nothing new here in a, in a funny way. And yet there is something very new, which is 
the use in the West as, uh, for therapy and for enlightenment and uh, you know, spiritual development. Um, the work in the 50s was very interesting because when these drugs burst upon the West, you know, they didn't come with an instruction manual and there was very little knowledge of the ancient use. So people really kind of floundered around for a while, both in, in science and out of science, trying to figure out what they were good for. Do we know how, I mean, they, they became established and people started taking them? Because, I mean, as you said, they've been, they were around since sort of prehistory. But not um, continuously, not so, and, and, and unknown to the West yeah. until, um, well, when the invention of LSD, yeah. um, but it wasn't immediately connected yeah. to those other things. And I mean, did, when, when LSD was created, did, was it Abby Hoffman who... Albert Hoffman, Albert Hoffman. no relation. No, no yeah. relation. <laughs> um, did he know what he was creating, or no. was it one of these things like penicillin that got sort yeah. of invented by accident? So what he was doing is, he was working from the ergot fungus, ergotamine is the, is the uh, active chemical in that. And this, this fungus has played a very interesting role in European history. It's been the cause of outbreaks of madness, it, there's a theory that it contributed to the witch trials in, in Massachusetts. But there would be a year with very wet conditions in the fall, and this fungus would grow on grain. It, it seemed to like rye especially. People would eat bread made from this fungus, and they would have delusions. They would go crazy. Um, St. Vitus' dance is believed to be connected to that. They would also get gangrene. It wasn't, it wasn't a party. And, um, <laughs> uh, and you'd be, you know, considered a witch. Um, and so, but ergot, the fungus, was also used in childbirth. Uh, and I think to staunch bleeding. And so uh, Albert Hoffman, who was a, a, a chemist at Sandoz, uh, which was a, you know, now Novartis, part of a big pharmaceutical company, uh, he was trying to derive, uh, basically tweak that molecule looking for useful drugs. And the 25th tweak was uh, LSD-25, as he called it. And he, they tested it on animals, didn't seem to help with bleeding or anything, and they put it on the, he put it on the shelf. And then something weird happens in 1943 where he gets a premonition, this is during wartime, that, that was, he should take a second look at that molecule. There was something about it, it was very beautiful, and so he essentially takes it off the shelf, which was, he'd never done before, and it's not generally done, and uh, resynthesized it and accidentally ingested some, probably got some on his finger or something, and you know, suddenly felt these psychoactive effects. Uh, and he realized he had a psychoactive agent. So a couple days later, he decides he's going to test it on himself, which was routine in those days, um, that you use drugs on yourself before you gave it to anybody else. It seems, it seems ethical, but now it seems outrageous also. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and he took a dose uh, that he thought was incredibly small, 250 micrograms, but LSD is active at really infinite. It's measured in micrograms, right? Millions of a gram. Most drugs are in a thousandth of a gram. And um, uh, everything started happening. He had the first, the world's first acid trip. And uh, the wall started coming to life. The furniture was alive. Uh, he felt himself leave his body and go up to the ceiling. And he realized, shit, I have to do something. And he, <laughs> he asked his lab assistant, this young woman, to, to take him home because he wanted to call the doctor, and they, uh, it was wartime, there was uh, gasoline rationing, so they had a bicycle home, and he had this famous, very wobbly bicycle journey, 
um, home in, in uh, Zurich, and when he got home, he called the doctor, or she called the doctor, and the doctor looks at him and said, all your vitals are fine, your eyes are kind of dilated, which let him relax a little bit, and what had been terrifying morphed into something much more pleasant, and he describes going out in his garden as, as the uh, effects are wearing off after several hours, and feeling like Adam on the first day of, uh, of creation, and everything is you know, is, is jeweled with dew, and, uh, and he writes this very beautiful pastoral scene. He still doesn't know what he has here, though. He knows he's got a powerful psychoactive agent, and, he does, and the company, too, doesn't know what to do with it. So they do something very unusual, which is essentially offer it to anybody with a good piece of letterhead to um, do research or claim to do research, and, as long, and they can have it for free as long as they report back. And uh, so that starts this kind of crowdsourced R&D program that goes on for 15 years. And that's where most of the researchers in the 50s got their LSD. It was called Delicid. And, uh, and, and they went through this very interesting iterative process of trying to figure out, what is this good for? And it took a while to figure it out. <laughs> and how did, it, how did it kind of hit the mainstream of sort of counterculture in the 1960s? Well, it was... You know, it was bound to escape the lab there, and it did. Um, in fact, it actually starts in the late 50s in L.A. There's a group of psychiatrists who are using it in their practices. They're, they're doing something. One of the early paradigms of what this was was um, that it could be used in psychoanalysis. So it was called psycholytic therapy. They, they kept changing the name as, the, as their framework changed for what it was good for. Psycholytic uh, means simply mind loosening. And so uh, shrinks were using it in psychoanalysis and they would essentially give you a moderate dose, like not a microdose, but like 50 micrograms, 75 micrograms. And this would supposedly loosen your inhibitions, allow you to bring unconscious material up um, and discuss difficult issues uh, without feeling defensive. And apparently this was, I mean, by the reports of these psychiatrists, there were never trials done. This was very successful, and a great number of Hollywood celebrities had this. Cary Grant, most famously, he had 56 sessions on LSD, which he said <laughs> completely changed him. He said uh, he, uh, it eliminated his ego so that he was a much better actor, and it made him irresistible to women, which doesn't sound like he totally eliminated his ego. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but Andre Previn, Jack Nicholson, maybe Stanley Kubrick or not, we're not quite sure, um, but there's a whole line. So this was kind of standard, you know, psychiatry in L.A. for a while. And then the shrink started bringing it home and having parties, and, and so there was a certain <laughs> cultural tranche in, in, in uh, Los Angeles that was using it recreationally. But it really doesn't take off in a big way nationally uh, until the mid-60s. And the story that I tell, I'm, I'm, there's a couple different LSD lineage, lineages. Um, on the West Coast, there was Ken Kesey, who was accidentally turned on by the CIA um, in uh, one of the, the bigger mistakes, I think, that uh, the government has made. Um, he, he, the, the CIA was doing research alongside the research being done for therapeutic uses. The CIA was trying to weaponize LSD and psilocybin as a truth serum, as a bioweapon. They, they had all these crazy ideas. And, uh, one of the, and they were testing it on people. So you would get 50 bucks, and you'd go into the VA in, um, 
uh, near Stanford and you would, they would dose you. And Ken Kesey had this big experience that convinced them this is a really important agent for social transformation. And he started the acid test and trying to give it to as many people. So, so it's, it's entering the culture on the West Coast, the counterculture on the West Coast. And then on the East Coast, you have Timothy Leary, of course, who's the most famous uh, you know, proselytizer for, for LSD and psilocybin. And he begins with a semi-serious research program at Harvard called the Harvard Psilocybin Project. Uh, he's hired at Harvard in 1960. And the summer before he gets there, um, he's in Mexico and he hears about psilocybin, which has been recently rediscovered, and uh, takes a psilocybin trip. And he said in four hours by the pool in Cuernavaca, he learned more about the human mind than he had in 15 years as a psychologist. And so he gets to Harvard and he starts something called the Harvard Psilocybin Project, which is to study this drug. And they do a couple serious studies, but a lot of it is like giving it to people in his living room and, you know, writing a, you know, a study on the, <laughs> the use of, of psilocybin in a naturalistic setting. And um, uh, anyway, over time, as sometimes happens with people who get involved with psychedelics, he got impatient with science. Uh, and he came to think that science was just another game. This was one of the insights he got from psychedelics. That, you know, you have the game of psychology, the game of being a professor, the game of, of uh, doing studies, and, he, and, he, and he, he realized, or he thought, this was too important for that, and that was too slow. And he began um, basically suggesting everybody should take it. And uh, he got into trouble with the administration at Harvard. He had promised that only graduate students would have access to the drugs in the, stu in the, in the study. Remember, they're legal at this point. Um, but some undergrads got a hold of it. And um, not through his doing, but through Richard Alpert's doing, uh, his, his partner, uh, who became Ramdas later. So they get bounced from Harvard. And when they do, they, they go on a mission, basically, to introduce all of America to psychedelics. Turn on, tune in, drop out was his slogan. That sounds kind of silly to us now, but it was really fighting words then and, uh, and was very frightening to parents and very frightening to the establishment. And beginning around 1965, you get this backlash that leads eventually to the closing down of this research, which is really an unprecedented uh, event in modern science that you have a promising avenue of research and just to give you an idea, there were 1,000 peer-reviewed studies, um, 40,000 research subjects. This is on both LSD and psilocybin. Six international con uh, conferences devoted to LSD in this period. And then it just dies out. Uh, scientists don't want to go near it. Funding dries up. And we have this 30-year drought where, where nothing really happens. But I'm, I'm quite interested in this sort of period of drought. I mean, I, it's time for me to sort of fess up tomorrow. <laughs> um, because I started taking LSD in, I, I took it for about two years in the mid-1970s. Um, and it was still very much around then. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, it sort of went off everybody's radar. I mean, it just sort of was, didn't appear to be available. I mean, I'd already decided that, you know, I'd had enough by then. Um, well, of that, anyway. And... Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but that's another story. Um, but, um, so, but normally, you know, countercultures have a way of, you know, maintaining themselves. I mean, all the other 
you know, uh, drugs that, you know, illegal drugs, there was still a market for them. Why wasn't, why, yeah. did, the, why did the market suddenly die? Well, I don't know specifically what was happening in England, but one of the interesting facts about LSD is it's, it's not easy to make well. Uh, getting the precursor chemicals is very different, and then getting, uh, very difficult, and getting a level of purity uh, is very hard. And at various times, there have only been one or two or three acid chemists, supposedly, who basically corner the market. And there was a famous bust in the 90s, I guess, of uh, a man who'd been making LSD uh, in an abandoned missile silo in Nebraska. <laughs> and he was a very um, altruistic guy, and he, and he gave away a lot of LSD, and, and, and the money he he was making, he gave to research. He gave to a researcher at Harvard, actually, to study LSD and cluster headaches and stuff. He wanted to restart research mm -hmm. at Harvard. Anyway, somebody, that guy made some, uh, something went wrong and he fingered, um, this guy's name is Leonard Picard, and he was busted. And after he went to jail, he's still in jail, 80% um, uh, of the supply dried up. He was supplying 80%. Now, I don't know whether uh, the American chemists were supplying um, England as well. No, I think, I think you might have just answered the question because I remember in the 70s there, was, there, were Welsh, there was some chemists out in Wales and they were busted in yeah. what was called Operation Julie. And yeah, maybe that was it. It may be maybe. that they were the they they had the market because um, this has happened repeatedly in America. That that uh, when Owsley Stanley was busted, he was mm. he was he really was the teacher of all these. There's a great um, there's a great movie about this called The Sunshine Makers uh, about this lineage of of uh, uh, acid chemists. Mm. So uh, it may have been something like that. Mm. Um, and, you know, people age out of it, or did, mm. to some extent. You know, you need a lot of time to do LSD. <laughs> it's like, a, it's a big commitment. Yeah. And um, it, it's hard to square with a busy career. <laughs> so when, so when, when do you date the new science to? So the Renaissance, which is really very much at the center of the narrative of the book, um, I date to the, the, the it begins in the late 90s. You have a group of people who have been committed to LSD and psilocybin research all along. Uh, it's, a, it's a mix of people uh, that includes some therapists, some activists, some uh, you know, social campaigners, and they're meeting through the 90s, usually at Esalen. Esalen is kind of the monastery. This is a, a, a conference center that doesn't really capture it in Big Sur, California. It's really the home of the whole human potential movement. It grew out of things that happened there. It's a very interesting place. It has a great history. Um, so people would meet there. And, uh, and, and people in the underground. So even when the research stopped, there were a group of therapists especially on the West Coast, but not limited to the West Coast, who were so convinced of the value of these medicines in their psychotherapy that they continued doing it underground. And, but they wanted the legitimacy. They wanted to bring it back. So they were part of these meetings also. And uh, at a certain point, the FDA um, signals, this is the Food and Drug Administration that does drug approvals in the US, signals that they're gonna treat um, psychedelics like any other drug. They're, they're no longer going to discriminate against it. And uh, this group gets together and organizes um, uh, an effort, basically, to restart the research. Some wealthy people put in some money. 
uh, a character in my book named Bob Jesse, who's a, who was a, a, a Silicon Valley executive at, at Oracle, uh, puts up some money and goes to um, a very prominent drug researcher at Johns Hopkins named Roland Griffith, who's one of the heroes of the book. And he, this is a guy who'd been studying caffeine and uh, drugs of abuse. He was a classic drug abuse researcher. But he was having a, a, a career crisis. Uh, he had discovered meditation, and he'd had experiences in his meditation practice that may, led him to question the materialist understanding of consciousness. He'd had a mystical experience of some kind. And he was about to like give up his career, run off to India, and go to an ashram. Anyway, Bob Jesse finds out about this and is introduced to him and says, if you want to study mystical experience, I'm your guy. And, uh, and so that becomes this first, I think, seminal paper that's done, uh, published in uh, 2006, but started in 1999. And it's a really weird, interesting paper because it has no, uh, it doesn't purport to be about therapy at all. The title is something like, uh, psilocybin can occasion mystical type experience in healthy normals with enduring positive effects. And, you know, I didn't know scientists studied mystical experience. And, um, and this paper, which had also demonstrated it could be administered uh, safely and that in about two-thirds of the cases, people, and these are fairly high dose, um, synthetic psilocybin, people would have a mystical experience. Now, what is that? Well, it was defined more or less by William James, and there's, you know, the psychologists have a scale for everything, so there's a hood mysticism scale, uh, <laughs> and you can tell, I filled one out, did you have a complete mystical experience? You can go online and find it. And, um, uh, but basically, mystical experience is this uh, experience of unitive consciousness. You feel like your sense of self is softening or melting, and you're, you're, you're becoming part of something larger, whether that's nature or the universe or divinity. Uh, transcendence of space and time, uh, a, a feeling of, um, of great well-being, um, and a sense that you have ob obtained some absolute knowledge, uh, that, that what you have experienced or seen is objectively true. Um, and of course this experience is at the root of many religions um, and there's a rich history of it leaving psychedelics apart. Um, but they found they could occasion it with a, or, or induce it with a drug and do it safely. And this really, this paper is very well received um, and there is at that point the license to study it in the therapeutic context. So I think that was really the key uh, key turning point. And, I mean, I suppose we get on to the key question now. How did you come to sort of enlighten on this? I mean, well, you know, what made a, a man in his 50s suddenly decide that uh, psychedelics were the way forward and that this was something that you had felt so passionately about that you might need to take them yourself? I might. Um... So I got into it, uh, you know, I had been writing books on other subjects, uh, food notably. Um, last time I was here was to talk about a book about food. And um, I heard about this research in 2013 or 14. Um, specifically, I heard about a really interesting trial going on at New York University and Johns Hopkins with the team that did the mystical uh, experience study. And they were giving psilocybin in the first therapeutic use after that uh, paper to people who had cancer diagnoses, uh, many of whom were terminal. 
with the goal of not obviously curing their cancer, but of um, lifting their anxiety, depression, fear. And they were apparently getting these very good results. It hadn't been published yet, but I, I reached out to the researchers and got an assignment from The New Yorker and started talking to both the researchers and the, um, and the volunteers. And my interest in this was twofold. One was, my subject as a writer is really nature, and, and plants in particular, and our, our engagement with them, and how we change them and they change us. And, and I, you know, in a book I wrote called The Botany of Desire, I had looked at the different desire, human desires that, that plants evolved to gratify as their evolutionary strategy. And food is obvious, the, domestic, you know, the, the, the domesticated grasses are great winners in that, in that game, and uh, beauty is another. Um, but a really interesting one is plants that evolved to change consciousness, change our consciousness, have, have really prospered in the world. Uh, because we have a universal, I mean, it appears to be in every culture that's been examined, desire to change our consciousness using plants or fungi. So I wrote a chapter on cannabis in that book, and it's always been in the back of my head as one of the more interesting phenomena. Um, and this seemed like an opportunity to look at it uh, in this other way. The other thing that was going on was personal. Um, my dad had a terminal diagnosis, and he was in his uh, mid-80s, and he was going to die, and um, really, he was very hard to talk to about it. Um, he, he processed it very internally, and I became very curious to talk to people who were processing it in a very different way, um, seeking to deal with it uh, through this experience, and, and I heard the most incredible stories from them. I mean, that, you know, stories of, of, of transformation after a single guided psychedelic session. People who had been paralyzed with fear losing their fear. People who had, after this experience, um, been able to die with an equanimity that anyone would envy. Um, and I got to know some of these people and talk to them at length and talk to their partners and talk to their shrinks. And, um, and I just realized this was, this was something that I had to look at and, and that an article wasn't going to do it. And that the history was really interesting and the neuroscience, how did it work? Why did it work? Uh, and the various applications and what it meant for the mental health system, all this said, well, this is a book. This is a layered enough story that it, it demands a book. So that's kind of how I got started. And um, I, f I have to tell you, I feel so fortunate I bumped into this topic. And it's very rare. I mean, the writers in the room know this. Usually you, you feel people looking over your shoulder and are you writing fast enough and other people are going to work on this and are you going to get it out in time? Mm -hmm. I even felt that with Omnivore's Dilemma, which. A lot of people think is a book that was the first book on food. It actually wasn't, but um, uh, you know, Eric Schlosser's book had already appeared. But I was like telling Judith, my wife, the whole time, I got to get this out. I I'm going to be late. I'm going to be late. Turned out I was early, but even so, I had that pressure. Here, I was like, where is everybody? <laughs> Nobody was working on this, and it was so rich. And um, and that made me worried in a different way. Like, am I crazy? <laughs> So, but at what point in the writing process did you think... I had to do it. Yeah, you had to sort yeah. of get involved. So pretty early. I mean, when I did the New Yorker piece, I was in a bit of a straitjacket. That's a, a, a kind of a, um, a piece of strict science writing. Mm -hmm. There's no first person to speak of. 
Uh, I, I didn't deal with things I was learning about, like there was an underground going on, because I think it, I, I know it would have freaked out the editors. And I really had to stick to, you know, peer-reviewed science. Although the big study at the middle of it hadn't been peer-reviewed yet, but nevertheless, I had to really stay close to the scientific enterprise. And if I had had an experience, that piece never would have gotten published in The New Yorker. Um, as it was, my editor, you know, had, had cold feet about the whole thing. Um, so, uh, but when I decided I was going to do a book, it was clear that I had to do it. Uh, and the reason is twofold, um, or threefold. One is, that's what I do as a writer. I mean, I, I, you know, I like to do kind of participatory journalism. When I wrote about the cattle industry, I bought a cow. When I wrote about <laughs> architecture, I built a house. When I learned how to bake, I apprenticed myself to a great baker. And I like putting myself in the story. Um, not in a confessional way. I don't actually reveal that much about myself usually, although in this book, this book is more personal. But just to have that vantage and that doing something for the first time, and I had not really had a psychedelic trip um, to this point. I, I know I'm a very late adapter. Um, that you can see something as no one else can see it. You have the first sight. You have the wonder that happens from doing something for the first time. And so you see it better than more experienced people do in a way, because they kind of know the territory. But it's, it's all virgin territory for you. So I knew I would have to do it. I had a lot of reluctance. I have to say I was really afraid. Um, the reason I hadn't done it in my 20s or teens was I didn't think I was sturdy enough. And, and the scare stories, I was a little late to the 60s, and the scare stories were out there, you know, of people jumping off of buildings and having their, their, their chromosomes scrambled. And I mean, there were lots of, a lot of it was misinformation, but some of it was true. Some yeah. people were landing in psych wards and things. So I just stayed away. And, um, and now here I was, as you say, in my late 50s, and... Um, embarking for the first time and with a lot of reluctance. Yeah. I'm a very reluctant psychonaut. But deciding that psychedelics were wasted on the young. Yes. Well, that's kind of a, that's kind of a throwaway line in the book. I, I suggest maybe they're wasted on the young. I, I know many young people have gotten enormous benefit from them. Um, but there's a quality they have, and this has been borne out by the research, of really helping people who are stuck. Uh, who are creatures of habit to a fault. And I think as we get older, we get more like that. Uh, I think we develop our, you know, our convenient algorithms for navigating life's challenges, and we can do it without thinking, and we have all these um, uh, just kind of ways we do things. And some of them are very destructive. Um, you know, we have addictive behaviors of various kinds, we have uh, ruminative loops we get stuck in, all this kind of stuff. And what the, what, the, the, what the researchers are finding, and certainly jibes with what I've heard from people and, and talked to people about, is the, the drugs are very good at kind of disassembling your beliefs and your priors of all kinds and making you temporarily much more plastic, uh, your mind, in such a way that you can break habits. And also providing perspectives. I mean, one of the more interesting uh, metaphors that stuck with me was talking to someone who had, uh, there was a cigarette cessation study at Johns Hopkins underway, and um, they're, they're finding it psilocybin, again, a single guided psilocybin trip. Actually, they do two in this study. Uh, is very helpful for people to break that very difficult to break habit. And when I asked people why, why should this, it didn't make much sense to me. And, um, 
I remember this one guy saying, well, I felt like the camera had been pulled back on the scene of my life much further than it ever had before. And I saw myself from this new vantage point. And from that vantage point, smoking seemed really stupid. And, <laughs> you know, this is not a profound observation. Um, uh, but it had, because of that noetic quality I described about mystical experience, it had this incredible authority. Uh, and it was sticky, and he could act on it. And, and I heard that from person after person. So th I think there's enormous potential here for behavior change in many ways. And, um, uh, you know, there are many ways to conceive of that. I mean, one is that the drugs suppress the ego function in the mind. And it is perhaps the ego that enforces these habits and these negative stories we tell ourselves, um, you know, that we can't get through the day without another cigarette or we're unworthy of love. I mean, all these kind of narratives we get stuck with, they're just kind of detonated by the experience. And there's a chance that when the dust settles, it can settle in a new way if you have therapeutic support. It's very important yeah. to emphasize these are guided well, maybe, trips. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should go into that because, I mean, yeah. as someone who suffers from mental health issues myself, I have to say that having taken LSD in the 1970s, the last thing I would do would yeah. take it again. I mean, I mean, the last time I took it, I had a, what was, I, you know, I thought I'd gone to hell and back. I mean, it was terrifying. And I, and I would... What did you see? God, I, um... Do you remember? Not really, no. I mean, I think I managed to block most of it. I, I just know it lasted for 12 hours. Yeah, that's, and, a, that's a problem with LSD. Yeah. <laughs> People say and I, it's and I was six sort of, amazing I was, hours and I was, then six more. Yeah, I was on my own, and it just felt like the, the world was falling apart around me. And yeah. um, It's hard I to imagine that would be therapeutic in any way. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and I just don't feel that that's a risk I could take again. Yeah, I understand that. Um, so the way it's done in this context, and this goes for the university trials that I'm describing, which, by the way, are happening here, too. You know, Imperial College has one of the most uh, active psychedelic, and they have a new psychedelic research center, but they've been doing some of the really pioneering work both in terms of the clinical work and theoretical work and brain imaging work. Uh, Robin Carhart-Harris is a brilliant young scientist who uh, is uh, heading up that center. Um, so you're, it's, there's a, the molecule's the same between what you did and what's happening in some of these trials. Actually, it's not because it's psilocybin and not LSD. And the reason they use L uh, psilocybin and not LSD is, is that reason. It takes too long. Uh, and, the, you know, the therapists want to get home for dinner, too. And it's 12 <laughs> hours, you're, you know, you're on overtime. It's like union problems, yeah. I'm sure. It's, you know, it's a big headache. And, um, and also, LSD is much more controversial. There are not a lot of politicians who've heard of psilocybin, uh, which gives it a certain kind of protection. Um, so in these trials, you're, um, there are two therapists, a man and a woman, they prepare you very carefully. You have a series of meetings, you get acquainted, they screen you. So if you have any um, uh, psychosis in your family history, uh, they won't admit you. And they, if you're on an SSRI, they want to make sure you're off it. Because it, it, Not that it's dangerous, but it doesn't work if you're on an SSRI. And something like one in six of you are on SSRIs, which is hard to believe, I mean, of, of English people. Um, and then they tell you what to expect and how to deal with the kind of scary things that happen to you. Uh, and they give you a set of flight instructions, 
which are advice like, if you feel like you're going crazy, you're melting, you're dying, go with it, don't fight it. Relax your mind and float downstream, as John Lennon wisely advised. <laughs> Surrender is really key, because it's when you fight what's happening to your mind, which is, of course, your ego's natural place to go to defend itself, that's when you get really anxious, because you really can't control what's happening very well. And, um, and then also to, to have a very exploratory uh, spirit. If you, if you see a door, open it. If you see a, a staircase, climb it. If you see a window, go through it. Um, if you see a monster, don't run away. Step right up to it and say, what are you doing in my mind? What do you have to teach me? And mm -hmm. all this kind of advice, if you do it, tends to get you through a bad patch uh, pretty reliably. So you, you have those tools, which are really useful. And then during the, the experience, um, and this will sound a little weird to people who've used these drugs in a recreational context, you're wearing eye shades. You, you, you can't see anything. Isn't that more terrifying? Well, it can be, I guess. Um, but it, it, has a, it performs a very important function, which is instead of kind of like grooving on the sensory information coming in, you're going inside. It's a very mm. in, internal trip. And the very interesting thing about uh, our senses is when we block them and the visual cortex is getting no information, it starts generating information. And so you have a lot of imagery and people appear to you and uh, narrative uh, arises. So, and I found when I took it off, it went away. And so in a way, if things did get upsetting I, and, and that did happen, I could lift them and then I was, oh, reality still exists, good, and then put it back. Um, and, uh, and you're listening to music, a very carefully curated playlist. There's a lot of argument in psychedelic circles about, you know. What's on the playlist? Well, it depends. <laughs> Here in England, it's uh, very, a lot of very modern music, you know, Philip Glass and Brian Eno and things like that. And uh, in uh, Johns Hopkins, it's a very classic old dead white male uh, playlist, um, which bothers some people. A lot of classical music and a lot of very, it has a very religious flavor to it, I, I thought. And New York is kind of halfway between NYU. So, <laughs> and there are people now composing for psychedelic sessions, which I think is a very interesting uh, commission for a composer. Well, the 12 hour symphony. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and the music is a very important part of it. I mean, music on psychedelics is a completely different thing. It's not purely auditory, right? It's visual, it's sensory. Um, you see music. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, kind of remarkable. And that seems to go against the eye shade idea because you're adding stimulus, but you're trying to block out uh, the ambient stimulus of the room so you really can travel. And the music kind of prompts you in, in very interesting ways. I, I had trouble with the music, actually, and I got in a lot of arguments with my guides about music because they were playing just awful New Age crap. And, um, so what, were you arguing with them while you were, while yes. you were hallucinating? I was like, can we change this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can, you can pull yourself together when you need to. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but let me just finish the protocol. Yeah, no, so, sure. so during the, you, so you're wearing the eyeshades, hearing the music, and the guides are with you the whole time. You're never left alone. Mm. And that's incredibly reassuring. And a sense of safety, I think, is the best way to prevent the kind of experience you have. And also, if you are going to allow your ego to dissolve, you have to feel safe in your body. 
And Roland Griffith will always come in right before people begin their trip and say, think of us as ground control. We've got, we're keeping an eye on you. We've got all our instruments, and you can go wherever you want out in space, and we'll be here, and you'll, be back. you'll come back. And um, they say very little. They're not trying to direct the experience. The idea is the mind should go where it needs to go to heal, and, um, and, but they have, they'll, they'll put a hand on your shoulder if you're getting upset or crying or something like that, and they'll give you some grapes if you need a little sugar hit. And, um, uh, and then, they don't say you're talking nonsense. You're not saying very much. Yeah. It's very internal, <laughs> yeah. and they're recording anything you say, though. Yeah. There was one uh, story I tell of this woman in the cancer trial, uh, Dina Baser, who was this 60-year-old, kind of timid, small woman who was a figure skating instructor in New York, and she had ovarian cancer. And it had been treated successfully, but she was in terror of recurrence, um, and she couldn't function. And you know, the, the other shoe was going to drop at any moment. And um, so she, she, did the, she did the journey. She went inside her body and her imagination. That's very common in the cancer patients. They often go into their body and they encounter their cancer. And she, but she encountered this black mass under her rib cage, which um, she realized was not her cancer, it was in the wrong place, it was her fear. And as soon as she saw it, this black mass, she screamed at it. And, and imagine what the, um, uh, the guides thought when suddenly this little woman gets, says, get the fuck out of my body. Yeah. And like, what happened to her? And, uh-huh. And it disappeared, and, yeah. she, and her fear went away, actually, yeah. uh, for good. Um, so anyway, they're there. They're writing down what you say. It must be very boring, and I, I ask them. <laughs> they can't read. Have you, ever done an act, have you ever acted as a guide? No, I haven't. I haven't. I don't think I would have the patience. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they meditate. They do a lot of meditating. And yeah. they're, it's heroic what they do. It really is. Mm. And they're very compassionate. And, and then uh, afterwards, you come back, and you have what's called an integration session, where you review what happened, try to make sense of what can be a very confusing experience, and really, they, they underscore themes and suggestions, and, 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 and you know, here's what you can do with that, or this connects to this in your life, because by then they know you pretty well. So that's the protocol. It's, um, it evolved in the 50s. They're basically doing it the same way they were doing it then. There's no scientific basis for this, but this is after lots of trips that were attempted in white rooms with fluorescent lights <laughs> and people didn't do very well, that this was the best way to do it. And uh, this seems to be canonical now. Yeah. Well, do you think you would just like to read that, uh, read um, uh, one of your experiences? just to? Give I would us be happy to. I'm going to read... Um, Early on in this book tour, I would sometimes ask audiences, do you want to hear a good trip or a bad trip? We all want the bad one. (laughs) You especially. So (laughs) it was not all sweetness and light. I I did a psychedelic, a pretty obscure one that I wasn't actually looking to do, but somebody approached me, one of my sources, saying, hey, this woman just came up from Mexico and she's bringing 5-MeO-DMT. What is 5-MeO-DMT? It's not DMT, it's a a different... uh, Well, it's the smoked venom of the Sonoran Desert toad. That sounded interesting. I immediately thought, you've got to give credit to a species that would figure that out. Yeah. (laughs) That this venom in this toad is toxic unless you smoke it. Um, So, no toads are harmed in the making of this psychedelic. Um, (laughs) I I, I hasten to add. Um, Basically, they gently squeeze these these glands on the side and on the legs of these toads against a, a pane of glass, 
and the liquid crystallizes overnight. It looks like brown sugar, and then you smoke it. It's incredibly strong and uh, fast onset and uh, fast acting, and, um, and it, it doesn't last that long. And the best thing I can say about it is it doesn't last that long. Um, so I did the toad, and um, <laughs> I was really nervous. And basically, um, the guide, uh, who was this Mexican woman who'd worked with it a lot, and she gathered the, the toads herself. I, I wasn't present for that in Sonora, Mexico. Um, you take, she gave me instructions, and you, you basically take a series of short um, and then a deep, uh, as deep as you can, and hold it as long as you can. And, um, and then you fall back onto a cushion, and you're off. Um, I have no memory of ever having exhaled or of being lowered onto the mattress and covered with a blanket. All at once I felt a tremendous rush of energy fill my head, accompanied by a punishing roar. I managed barely to squeeze out the words I had prepared, trust and surrender. These words became my mantra, but they seemed utterly pathetic, wishful scraps of paper in the face of this Category 5 mental storm. Terror seized me, and then, like one of those flimsy wooden houses erected on Bikini Atoll to be blown up in the nuclear tests, I was no more. Blasted to a confetti cloud by an explosive force I could no longer locate in my head because it had exploded that too, expanding to become all that there was. Whatever this was, it was not a hallucination. A hallucination implies a reality and a point of reference and an entity to have it. None of those things remained. Unfortunately, the terror didn't disappear with the extinction of my eye. Whatever allowed me to register this experience, this post-egoic awareness I'd first experienced on mushrooms, was now consumed in the flames of terror too. In fact, every touchstone that tells us I exist was annihilated, and yet I remained conscious. Is this what death feels like? Could, that be, could this be it? That was the thought though there was no longer a thinker to have it. Here words fail. In truth, there, was no flame. there were no flames, no blasts, no thermonuclear storm. I'm grasping at metaphor in the hope of forming some stable and shareable concept of what was unfolding in my mind. In the event, there was no coherent thought, just pure and terrible sensation. Only afterward did I wonder if this was what the mystics call the mysterium tremendum, the blinding, unendurable mystery, whether of God or some other ultimate or absolute, before which humans tremble in awe. Huxley described it as the fear, quote, of being overwhelmed, of disintegrating under a pressure of reality greater than a mind accustomed to living most of the time in a cozy world of symbols could possibly bear. Oh, to be back in the cozy world of symbols. <laughs> After the fact, I kept returning to one of two metaphors, and while they, in, while they invariably deform the experience, as any words or metaphors or symbols must, by the way, a, a characteristic of the mystical experience is ineffability, right? Because this is an experience beyond the reach of your language. Um, and yet we must eff it. Um, <laughs> they at least allow me to grasp hold of a shadow of it and perhaps share it. The first metaphor is the image of being on the outside of a rocket after launch. I'm holding on with both hands, legs clenched around it, while the rapidly mounting G-forces clutch at my flesh, pulling my face down into a taut grimace as the great cylinder rises through successive layers of clouds, exponentially gaining speed and altitude, the fuselage shuddering on the brink of self-destruction as it strains to break free from Earth's grip 
grip, while the friction it generates as it crashes through the thinning air issues in a deafening roar. It was a little like that. The other metaphor was the Big Bang, uh, but the Big Bang run in reverse from our familiar world all the way back to a point before there was anything, no time or space or matter, only the pure unbounded energy that was all that there was then before some imperfection, a, rip, a ripple in its waveform caused the universe of energy to fall into time, space and matter. Rushing backward through 14 billion years, I watched the dimensions of reality collapse one by one until there was nothing left, not even being, only the all-consuming roar. It was just horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but, thank you. But it only lasted 10 minutes. Yeah. Although, it seemed eternal to me. Yeah. And I have to say, after it was over, Reality reconstituted itself very quickly, and I reached down and I felt, oh my God, I have a body. Isn't that great? Yeah. And felt the floor, and there's matter, and, and time. I could feel, I heard music, I heard time elapsing. And I was so, I had a feeling of gratitude, the likes of which I'd never had. I mean, we've well, the all... the gratitude for coming back to normal. The, yeah, the gratitude yeah. for coming back to normal, still being alive, but I was grateful for the fact there was anything at all, <laughs> and not nothing. I was grateful for existence itself. Um, so that was the upside, but I would never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, no, I, I certainly wouldn't either. I, I realize we're, ne we're nearly time for questions, but I do think we should just talk a bit more about the kind of the therapeutic use. You, 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 you say they're used in treatment of depression, depression, addiction. 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 There's a big trial going on for depression here at Imperial College. By the way, they're still looking for um, uh, volunteers. Um, uh, there is uh, a, uh, a trial for depression in, uh, in uh, several trials for depression in the United States as well. There are trials for various forms of addiction. There's a big alcoholism trial going on at NYU. There is a, uh, a trial of cocaine addiction that just completed at University of Alabama that was very successful. A trial of cigarette, cigarette cessation. There's a trial of eating disorders, which I think is very exciting um, because this is actually the hardest psychiatric um, uh, disorder to treat and has the highest mortality of any psychiatric disorder. So that would be a really important breakthrough. Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, I think there's something getting underway. Um, now it sounds like, wait, what, 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 this is a panacea? I mean it sounds a little suspect and I thought it was too. Um, and, um, but when I interviewed someone named Tom Insel, who's a very prominent psychiatrist in America, he used to be head of the National Institute of Mental Health, and I said, how could, how could one drug work on so many different things? And he said, don't be so sure they're all different things. Um, he said, you know, we have, it's an artifact of the, of, in America of the insurance industry that we have these diagnoses and we, we divide everything. But he said all the things that it seems to be helpful for, and, and we're just talking about potential here. These are still small trials. We have to do much bigger trials. Um, maybe manifestations, different manifestations of a similar mental formation or, or brain condition which is of excessive rigidity, uh, a mind that is, is um, trapped in habit, trapped in repetitive loops. Um, and Robin Carhart Harris, the, the researcher here, um, theorizes that these, these are illnesses all at one end of the spectrum where the brain is, uh, has too much order, 
the brain is on a spectrum from being highly disordered with schizophrenia and personality disorder and overly ordered with depression, anxiety. Um, and, you know, I mean, as one person I quoted said, uh, depression is regret about the past, anxiety is regret about the future. Um, that they're, they're, they're very similar. And, uh, and so that that might explain this, this, um, this plasticity, uh, this, this destruction of your, of your rigid beliefs that happens. That may explain why. Mm -hmm. And then addiction, I mean, all those things are habits, right? Habits mm -hmm. of thought and, and that are linked to habits of behavior. So that's the theory anyway. And um, look, it's a very exciting frontier because mental health is in crisis. Um, we have very poor tools. They mostly deal with symptoms. Uh, rates of depression, uh, suicide, addiction are up. We have a huge opiate crisis in America. 75,000 people uh, died last year um, from overdose of opiates. So, um, you know, it's not a moment too soon to be exploring these mm. things and, and we can hope that within five or ten years we'll have some mm. valuable new treatments. And is it, is it a sort of one-hit wonder, one treatment and it works or does it have a sort of limited time span yeah. and people revert to normal? So or, it or is default. one or two. I mean, that's what's weird about it. I mean, fitting it into how we do pharmaceuticals or how we do psychotherapy, it's, it's one big event uh, that is supposed to provide the, tran the transformative push. Mm. Um, in the early depression trials, we see the depression returning after a couple months. People have a month of, of really good relief. Um, this is the majority, it's not everybody. It, and um, there are people who have these dud trips that they don't totally understand. Um, on the addiction though, it appears to be permanent. Um, people have been tracked out six months in a year and they remain abstinent. Um, uh, so I think it depends. I think depression is gonna be really hard, but depression may not be one thing. The depression of a cancer patient is obviously very different than depression of somebody who's been depressed for 30 years without a clear cause. Uh, their brains have changed in that mm -hmm. process. That's going to be difficult to treat. So, but even the people who get that brief period of relief, if you can, if you can divert a suicide attempt, um, that's, that's huge. And um, I talked to one woman, uh, a woman who lives here, American living in London, and she said she had been depressed continually since 1991 continually under that cloud and she had her first month of no depression and she said this was such a revelation to her um, and that even though it returned it wasn't quite as bad and she knew that this wasn't her and this wasn't existence and that it gave her a kind of motivation to deal with it and seek treatment and seek more psychedelics. <laughs> but she can't get it in the trial anymore. She had a, I think she had to go freelance. <laughs> All right, um, it's now your turn. We've got a couple of roving mics. Uh, God, we've got loads of people. Uh, can we start with the woman in the corner here? Uh. No, it's not on. Oh. Oh, I can. I'll do my loud voice. Um, hi, my name is Libby Davy. I'm a, I'm a coach, a writer, and an activist. And my question for you, Michael, is around the climate crisis, if we want to call it that. Um, I'm really interested in the psychedelic movement. I'm working to support that flourishing because I believe it could be something that really helps enough people 
general people, citizens, people in positions of power to, to, to wake up, for want of a better word, and act. Uh, because it feels like time's ticking. And whilst we wait for the scientific trials to complete to the degree that the powers that be will allow the widespread use of the compounds that we seek, that I seek to see more widely available in safe protocols, we have this gap where the underground will continue and we will act as we see best you know, to act individually and collectively. I'd love you to talk into that space of yeah. the gap of, of the years and years that we might wait to see the change that we need and the clock that's ticking. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think psychedelics have very interesting implications for uh, the environmental crisis, actually. Um, and there is a conversation in the psychedelic community, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, of like, okay, we can talk about individuals and, and, and uh, helping them, and I think that's paramount importance. but. Could these drugs help at a societal level if, if uh, they were widely enough disseminated? Um, it's a very tricky question. First of all, there is interesting evidence that was uh, developed at Imperial College that people's attitudes toward nature change um, with a single psychedelic experience. Another scale the psychologists have is the nature connectedness scale, where the, which judges how much you feel you're part of nature or you're alienated or stand outside nature. And those scales reliably go up after a single uh, psilocybin trip. Um, so in a sense, it's exactly the right medicine for the civilization we find ourselves in. Um, and tolerance of authoritarianism goes down. The tricky part is how do you prescribe a drug to a whole culture? <laughs> you know, it's not fluoride. We're not going to put it in the water supply. And apparently the chlorine would destroy the LSD anyway. Um, and the sunlight. Um, and this is a debate that's been going on since the 50s. Um, uh, Aldous Huxley was debating this with Timothy Leary and there was a kind of two schools. There was an elite school uh, that Huxley um, pioneered, which was let's give it to the influencers, let's give it to the campaigners, let's give it to the, uh, the leaders, let's give it to the um, religious leaders and corporate titans. And the, 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 these are people who influence other people and the consciousness will filter down. And then you had Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey were like, no, let's give it to everybody um, as fast as we can. Turn on, tune in, drop out. That was for everybody. I, I don't know. I, I, I just don't know if that's realistic. Um, I don't know that giving it to lots of people necessarily changes behavior at that level. Um, but I, I understand the sense of emergency and this does seem to address the problem. I think an interesting application, and this would go under the elitist theory, is that campaigners who are getting burnt out, uh, you know, these people are very important to the survival of our civilization. And if they're faith and hope can be renewed by having a guided psychedelic trip, that seems like a really yeah. good application. And there are actually people yeah. thinking about that. Um, so that might be one targeted way to, uh, to contribute. Look, nobody's waiting for the, uh, the research to complete. Um, the underground is very active and thriving as never before. But it's not that far away. I, I really think that approval could come in five to seven years, say, um, at, the, at the rate we're, we're on. The funding is there, the approvals are there. Um, so we're not talking about 20 years from now. Do you think it would change people's minds over Brexit? <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, there's a this very... could be better than a second referendum. <laughs> <laughs> you have can to decide we, who to give it to. Can, can we have um, the middle mic? Yeah. yeah. Hello. Hi, Michael. Thank you for writing this book. My name is Yannick. Uh, I come from the field of uh, life and business coaching. And I can't help but see so many parallels to potential to, not, to go beyond treatment and uh, fixing what's wrong and uh, work on growth and development. So I wondered if you came across any coaches working in that space or any research that has focused on going forward. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. There's no research, but there, believe it or not, uh, there are companies in Silicon Valley using psychedelics in their management training, um, quietly. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of awkward thing, though. I mean, what do you do with the employee who doesn't want to do it? Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't want to stigmatize this person for a very reasonable choice. <laughs> um, I, had, I was at a conference, and, and there was a young tech executive who just raised his $100 million and had hired a bunch of people for the first time, and suddenly he had 200 employees, and, and it, everything was a mess, and everybody was stabbing each other in the back, and he, and he had no management experience. He was, you know, a, a software guy. And, uh, and he was convinced, and he bought 10 copies of my book and, uh, for his Good staff. guy. Good guy. I like this guy. <laughs> but he was a little naive because he said, so I'm going to have a, I'm going to, you know, do an offsite, as we call them in America, and get, get the staff together, and we're all going to, and I'll get a shaman or a guide, and we'll all take psychedelics, and we'll work it out. <laughs> and I started bringing up these questions about the abstainers, and, and, um, and he, he gradually realized it was, it was really complicated and that it, he would have to make it optional in some ways. And, um, but I've heard of other companies that have done it. Um, and, uh, and interesting, this is not an entirely new idea. I learned back in the 50s, um, Ampex, which was the first big Silicon Valley company before it was called Silicon Valley, they did magnetic tape and recording tape uh, for uh, computers and, and audio. Um, and some of the top executives there, their head of strategic planning, had been turned on to psychedelics by someone following the elitist paradigm. And uh, he realized, this is amazing. And he went to the president and said, we've got to become the first psychedelic corporation. And um, so this guy I profile in the book named Al Hubbard comes in and starts leading, you know, C-suite um, <laughs> trips. But the problem was Al Hubbard, who was doing it, was this Catholic mystic, and he kept bringing in images of, the, of, uh, of Christ and Mary, and, and the, the president was Jewish, and he, like got, he got really pissed off, and he, he threw him out. So there probably is the first psychedelic corporation now. I, I don't know which one it is, but I'm guessing that there's, there's, one, there's one out there. Okay, um, the man there yeah. with the microphone, yes. Hi there, I, I read your book when it came out and um, re in reflecting the discussion tonight, the therapeutic use was, was highlighted and, in, and that was important in normalising this in some ways I would see. But I thought the bravest part of the book, and this is a spoiler alert, is that you ended the book really by talking about the use of healthy, by healthy normals which I thought was super brave because you could have hidden behind the kind of therapeutic kind of model, if you like. Why did you choose to end the book like that? And, and what did you mean by uh, how useful it could be for that category? Yeah, so, I, you know, I, my sense after having the experiences I did and learning what I could about the research and learning about the relative safety of these drugs, I mean, there are 
non-toxic virtually and they are uh, non-addictive, that it seems to me there should be a place for um, people who want to use them for what we would call recreational purposes. I mean, that word is often uh, denigrated, but what does it mean? Recreation. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and all of us are on a spectrum with the people who are struggling with depression and anxiety and addiction. We're all addicted to something. We all have periods of depression. We're all stuck in one way or another, and the more so as we get older. Uh, so the, what Bob Jesse, the, the man I, I mentioned who got things started, calls in his in, in, inimitable way the betterment of well people, um, seems to me like a legitimate thing to strive for. Um, I think the challenge is figuring out how to do it in a way that's safe because there are psychological risks and there are people who shouldn't take these drugs. Um, and incorporating it into our culture in a way that is productive and not disruptive seems to me uh, important to figure out. Um, in the 60s, you know, you can argue whether that was a successful experiment or not, but it did destroy itself as an experiment. And, um, and part of the reason was that the drugs were often used recklessly. Um, people did really crazy things, like put them in the punch bowl and dose people without their permission, um, things that are just seem to me unspeakably cruel. So in the same way we've developed this medical container, this set of protocols I described, um, we need to develop a container for the rest of us. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I think it's a really important cultural project to figure that out. I think, though, there are lessons to be learned from the ancient history of psychedelics. Um, how was it used in ancient Greece? How was it used in, in Bolivia? How was it used in Mexico or Siberia? Well, there's, we have a few clues. Um, it was seldom used alone. Um, it was usually in a group. There was always an elder involved, somebody who knew the territory, to be there to help people, guide them, prepare them for the experience. It was used in a very ritual way or ceremonial way with a lot of, int uh, you know, with very clear intention and only on very special occasions. So I think that there are the ingredients there that we could begin to build that. I think first we need to, you know, the medical, medical model needs to be established, but I think this will follow from that um, pretty organically. Uh, and that we, you know, we could look forward to a time where that would be available. Making it accessible, I think, is very important because it's expensive, all that, you know, attention, um, therapeutic attention. Uh, but it's, uh, so yeah, I thought it was important. I didn't want to leave it with just medicine. And um, uh, because I had benefited from it myself, and it would be, you know, disingenuous of me to say, well, you know, other people have to have a diagnosis and to do it, because um, I don't think that. So in short, just carry on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, right at the back. Does this work? Hello? Hi, thank you for being here. My name is Milena Burstein, uh, and I'm a graduate student at the U University of Chicago. A couple of quick questions for you. One is, what ethical issues do you see arising from the prescription and application of psychedelics? And the other question is, how should policymakers think about this? Okay, well, policymakers haven't really thought about it very much yet. Um, I think it's too new for that. Um, there are a lot of issues that arise. I mean, 
I mean, we, you know, we could have another backlash. It's not out of the question. I mean, in one way, we have the insurance policy that now the people in charge of our institutions, many of them have experience with psychedelics, and they're not as frightened of them as people were in the 60s, where, you know, the people who ran the establishment were really freaked out about it. So that's good. There, there are people who work at the FDA who are psychonauts. Um, I've met some of them. And... Um, uh, <laughs> But there could be a backlash. I worry about sexual abuse in the therapeutic relation with psychedelics. When you have, as you do underground, you have one guide, um, you know, your, your judgment is disabled, essentially, and an unscrupulous therapist could take advantage of somebody. Uh, I do worry about, we're, we're trialing, uh, you know, several hundred depressives, people with serious treatment-resistant and major depression, someone's going to commit suicide in that group and that is going to resonate in the press because of the history of psychedelics and the associations people have even though people routinely commit suicide getting off of SSRIs or, or being on SSRIs and it's not a story so those are issues but there are a whole lot of challenges in how we've how we incorporate this in both the pharmaceutical industry and in, the, in therapy. This is a weird new model. This is a combination of therapy and drugs. It's not just drugs. It's the package. And we don't have a model like that. And the pharmaceutical industry, that their business model is selling you a pill you have to take every day for the rest of your life. Are they interested in a pill you're going to take once or twice? How's that going to work? Mm. Um, and then the therapists are used to people who come back every week, you know, interminably. And... Um, this involves several days of, of intensive work and then none. So the business model on both sides is, is difficult to imagine. And it, you know, that's why it may be revolutionary um, because it will require new business models, uh, new ways of organizing our mental health care. Um, so there's a lot up for grabs. And if you're a public policy graduate student, there's, there'll be very good work for you in this area. Thank you. I think we've time for just one more, this woman in yellow. Uh, anyone else who didn't get in, do come and have a chat to Michael at the end. Hi, Michael. Yeah, I'll be out signing after. Yeah. Loved your book. Uh, my name is Karen Hennigan. Um, I was trying to understand, uh, I know this is a very difficult question to answer, but if I were to look for a psychedelic therapist, I know that they're out there and they've been educated by different institutes. How the heck do you find a psychedelic yeah. therapist? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, so I cannot make any referrals. I've been asked, <laughs> I've been asked literally hundreds of times, and, um, uh, and it's just too dangerous for the guides, and uh, it's dangerous for everybody involved. Um, I did put some resources on my website. There's a re psychedelic resources page, um, because I wanted to offer something to people like yourself. And um, a couple thoughts occur. Um, one is I listed, uh, a there's a directory of psychedelic societies. There's a very active one in, in, uh, in this area. Um, and these are groups of people very interested in psychedelics, and I'm sure there's some members here, who meet occasionally. I don't actually know what they do. They don't take psychedelics, but they talk about them. And they talk about the research, and they share their own experiences. And it is my strong hunch that if you went to a couple of those meetings, you would meet somebody who was a guide or <laughs> could introduce you to a guide. So you have to put on your, you know, journalism hat 
and because that's how I did it. I didn't know anybody, and um, but I I also asked people who you know did they know anybody, and eventually I found somebody who had a had a relative who'd done the psychedelic journey in the Bay Area and got in touch and reached out, and you know, so that's how it happens. The other thing is if you know there is another drug we didn't talk about, and I don't really deal with it in the book called ketamine, which is legal here, I think. No? No, okay. I don't think so. Okay. Well, ketamine... You gave a lot of people some hope there. <laughs> Come to San Francisco, where ketamine is uh, prescribed off-label. It's not approved for this use, but a lot of psychiatrists are using it and to treat depression. And it gives a, a, a psychedelic-like experience of dissociation. And um, in my experience, many of the people offering ketamine th therapy legally are well acquainted with the guide community. Um, and so that was, an, that, in America, that's another way in. But check out the psychedelic societies. There's also, uh, I recommend some books that if you decide to proceed with, uh, you know, a friend or someone else who's going to guide you, or you have a therapist friend who's willing to guide you, um, how to do it exactly. Um, so uh, I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for your no, excellent... Sorry, no. That's, thank you, that's a good suggestion. Wow. So, so psilocybin, in the form of psilocybin truffles, are legal in Amsterdam. And the, the, the London Society organizes group trips, yeah. uh, in every sense of the word, to, uh, to Amsterdam. Uh, well, Thanks, thank you. Who, so, who says you didn't get your money's worth? <laughs> uh, well, look, thank you very much, everybody, for coming along. It's great, to, it's great to have seen you all here. And especially thank you to Michael. It's been oh, it's been fantastic conversation. You've been such a great talker. And please do come and buy his book. He'll be signing outside. Thanks, so please give him a round of applause. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, too. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll see you outside.